Why don't we start this morning in 2 Kings chapter 18. We're teaching a series on the uh, uh, God and miracles. And this morning I'd like to, to cover four miracles and um, finish up the Old Testament miracles. We haven't covered them all certainly, but uh, we've given a, um, a good number of them a look. And, and um, then we want to move into the New Testament miracles beginning next week and the miracles of Jesus and so forth. Uh, the four I want to talk to you this morning all have a similar theme, and, and that is their miracles of protection. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 18, um, Hezekiah has become king of, uh, of Israel, and their great en- enemy at that point in time was the Assyrians. Sennacherib is, uh, is the king of, uh, of the Assyrian kingdom, and um, Present-day Syria is just to the north of Israel, but their kingdom in that day, the Assyrian kingdom of that day, was something that stretched all the way around Israel, encircled Israel almost, and uh, they were just across the Jordan River from them. And so when Hezekiah becomes king, it says in chapter 18, verse um, 3, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke down the images of the statues that Israel had set up previous uh, uh, kings before him and cut down the groves. These were the places of worship. They'd uh, make orchards and, and um, uh, stands of trees that they would uh, worship these false gods in. So he cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Now, you remember in Numbers, uh, what is it, Numbers chapter 21 around there somewhere, it talks about how that uh, the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against God and uh, it said that fiery serpents came into the camp. And Moses petitioned God for the answer. And there were a lot of people that were dying as a result of their own sin. And so Moses petitioned the Lord and said, uh, what do I do about this? And God said, make a brass serpent, a brazen serpent or a brass serpent and put it on a pole. Now that represented Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 3, when he was talking about uh, the great um, verse that everybody knows, John three sixteen. the context of that was Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as well. So Jesus identifies that, the, the uh, brass serpent, as uh, being a type of him. And so anyway, God told Moses, lift up this brass serpent, and everybody that looks on it shall live. Well, now there's two things that the children of Israel needed, to, needed relief from. One certainly was the, the snake bites, the poisonous snake bites that were causing everybody to die, or a great number of them to die. But the second thing they needed was something to, to cover over their sin because the only reason that the snakes came in, and the Bible tells us very specifically that God led them through the wilderness where there were all kinds of fiery serpents. The, the, the real question is not why did the fiery serpents came in, come into the camp. The real thing to, to marvel at is how God kept them out of the camp for 40 years except for that one instance. They were protected from them for the period of time that, uh, that they were not in rebellion to God. So anyway, they needed, they needed relief. They needed forgiveness not only for their sin, but they needed relief from the, the snake binds itself. So Moses told the people on behalf of God, everybody that looks on this serpent of brass on the pole shall live. And they did. The people uh, lived and they um, uh, were healed and their sins were forgiven. So the type of Jesus in the Old Testament provided not only forgiveness of sins, but also healing for the physical body, just like Jesus' work on the cross did for us. But the children of Israel, following that time, in the time of Hezekiah and prior to his, his reign, the children of Israel have made an idol out of that brass serpent. I've always been intrigued by the fact that it says that when Moses' time to die came, he went up into the mountain, and the Bible says that God buried him. It's a good thing God did. Because can you imagine what the Jews would have done with the tomb of Moses? Man, they would have made shrines out of the bones that were left and who knows whatever else. It's so easy for something that God does to turn it into an idol when you don't recognize that the, the, the representation, they didn't recognize what the, what the brass serpent represented. They made it an idol unto themselves. So they began to burn incense to the thing. That's how far Israel had fallen from the God that delivered them from Egypt. So it says in verse 5, he, speaking of Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him. So Hezekiah is the greatest king of Judah. The the kingdoms are divided. Uh, The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. So Hezekiah was the greatest 
of the kings of Judah because he served God. Now, in chapter 18, it tells us about Sennacherib, who was king of Assyria. He came up against Israel, and, and I, I won't go into the whole story. I want to get to the, the end of the, the thing, but I've got to set it up a little bit for you. Because the king of, uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, um, was the greatest threat that you could possibly imagine. Like I said, Judah was just about almost completely encircled by this uh, Assyrian kingdom. And uh, as a result... Uh, you can imagine the the fear and the dread that any movement that the Assyrians made would cause in, uh, in, well, forgive me for calling them Israel, but you know what I mean, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so anyway, Sennacherib makes a a move against uh, against Jerusalem, against uh, Judah, and Hezekiah gets scared. You can well understand why this would be. So he sends word to him and he says, what do I have to pay you to keep you from attacking me? And then it tells about all the money that he gathered up. He gave all the way the treasures of the king's palace. And then Hezekiah was so afraid because of the the threat of the Assyrian kingdom that he took off the gold from the doors of the temple. Now, there's only one reason. I mean, he's serving God. He's doing everything he can to to get right with God and to to lead the the people of Israel in a godly way. But that just says to me, that just typifies to me the, the extreme fear that he had to have. I mean, he's not trusting God instead of the Assyrians. He's recognizing if I don't pay these people off, we're going to be wiped out. That doesn't sound like a lot of faith to me, but you'll see him change. So he takes off the gold from the doors of the temple and sends it to the Assyrians, and that doesn't even do it. That doesn't appease them. Folks, let me tell you something. Any deal you try to make with the devil, it never is enough. No matter what you try to give up to compromise with the devil or the world or other people that are being used by the devil against you, it's never going to be enough. So Sennacherib sends people against him. He sends his advisors. He sends these smooth-tongued orators. And they stand in the midst of the people, stand before the king and in the midst of the people, and they start making all kinds of threats. And they said, now, wait a minute. Who do you think is going to protect you from us? This may sound familiar. This is the same stuff the devil tells us. Who do you think is going to protect you from us? Have you not seen the other kings that we've already swallowed up? They trusted in their gods and it didn't do them any good. And then they finally get to such a point where one of the the leaders says, now don't believe Hezekiah if he says God will protect you because God told us to take the land. Uh Uh-oh. You get competing prophecies. One is saying God will protect us. The other is saying, God told me to take you. What are the people supposed to believe? Well, Hezekiah hears this, this message that was designed for one and only one purpose, and that was to scare the bejeebers out of them. Just like the devil tries to tell you the stuff that he says for the purpose of instilling fear. So Hezekiah tears his clothes. Chapter 19 says that he heard, when he heard this, he rent his clothes, and he put sackcloth and ashes on and did all this kind of stuff to symbolize oh woe is me and then he called out to god now i don't know why he didn't call out to god before he gave away the gold on the doors of the temple i mean if you're going to trust god why not trust him early you know why make compromises and then get to the place where then you trust god but so often that's what we do We'll compromise and compromise and compromise back up step after step after step. And finally, we get to the place where we're so desperate that we have no other choice. And then we say, okay, God, now help me. It's not the best way to go, folks. So he calls out to God. And and the, the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet in the land at that point in time. And so Isaiah says, this is chapter 19 and verse 6. Isaiah said unto them, thus shall you say to your master... In other words, this is what Isaiah is saying to the servants. Tell Hezekiah the king this. Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. This is God speaking on his own behalf through Isaiah. He said, Behold, I will send a blast upon him. The word blast is the word breath. He says, Don't worry, I'll breathe on him. That kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Here's the greatest army on the face of the earth at that point in time. And God says, don't worry, I'll breathe on him. Behold, I'll send a blast upon him and he shall hear a rumor. 
and shall return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So it says in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. This is all other threats that are being made. Um, and well, I don't want to read the whole thing. Um, skip down with me to, to verse, um, 25. No, 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 not there. Skip with me over to verse 32. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank. That's how they'd make the ramps to get above the walls and things like that, and cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city. Let me ask you a question, folks. Does God care more about cities than he does his children? Yeah, but that was Jerusalem. Yeah, that was Jerusalem. Does he care more about Jerusalem that has been sacked and destroyed and rebuilt time after time after time throughout history? Does he care more about that than he does his children? Let me ask it this way. Did Jesus die for Jerusalem? No, but he died for you. Who does God care more about? His children, certainly. God can rebuild cities. He can commission it to be done. He could do it himself. He cares more about you than he does anything else. If God would defend his city, why would he not defend you? For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, here's what God did. Here's the blast or the breathing on on, uh, the Assyrian army that he did. And it came to pass that night, this is verse 35, that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians. A hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. That's 185,000 people. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Now remember God prophesied that, that Sennacherib would die by the sword in his own land. Here's how that happened. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. That was his capital. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the God, the house of Nisroch, I guess, his God, that two guys that I wouldn't even try to pronounce their names, his son smote them with the sword. Folks, I got to tell you something. If you named your son something like that, you need to look behind you. (laughs) So his son smote him with the sword while he's worshiping his God, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and his son reigned it instead. Now, here's one of the greatest enemies that israel ever faced one of the greatest kingdoms one of the largest kingdoms one of the most well-armed military militarily superior kingdoms that israel ever faced and boy it looks tough it looks like this is it just like our, our cousins the ten and a half tribes of the northern kingdom were already overtaken by them and are part of the assyrian kingdom now we're going to be swallowed up too And God breathes on them. We need to get our our thinking in line with what the Bible says. I mean, who is the big dog here? God says, don't worry about it. I'll defend the city. I'll breathe on them. And that's exactly what he does. Now, the breathing on him that took place was the angel of the Lord going out and and killing, smiting, killing 185,000 people. In one night. Now it doesn't say God sent an army of angels. It says the angel of the Lord. If if we're to interpret this literally. This is one person. That's a busy night. Now what's the point? Remember the the Bible says that uh, everything in the Old Testament. These signs and wonders and, and situations of Israel. Are examples to us. What's the example? Folks, when you put God first, even when you're afraid to begin with, God always honors you. The Bible says in Psalm um, 103, verse 17-ish, somewhere around there, 
It says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to them that fear him. From everlasting to everlasting to them that fear him. Now, this is going to be the common theme of these four miracles that, uh, that we'll talk about this morning. And that is, the people that put God first see miraculous things in their lives. The devil always wants to make you afraid of putting the things of God first. He wants to make you afraid of putting the word first in your life. He wants to make you afraid of just standing on the word in this thing called faith. Well, what's going to happen? How's it going to work? Other people have tried and failed. But when you put God first in your life, not only does God see you through, but he promotes you. Now, turn with me to this next one in chapter 20. Many years go by. We don't know exactly how many. But many years go by. And it says in verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos. Came to him and said unto him. Thus saith the Lord. Now get this. Here's the prophet speaking for God. Thus saith the Lord. Set set thy house in order. For thou shalt die and not live. Now I wouldn't. If I was Hezekiah. I wouldn't consider that good news. So what does Hezekiah do? He buries his face in his pillow. And says oh woe is me. No, he tries to change it. Folks, sometimes what God says is based on the circumstances as they exist at that moment. Some things can be changed. Hezekiah then turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember. Now get this. If he had not had something to to stand on, if he had not had uh, a history of putting God first, I don't know what he had done other than die. But he said, remember. How I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah was even gone out into the middle court. He hadn't even got out of the house yet. That the word of the Lord came unto him saying, Go turn again and tell Hezekiah the captain of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father. I have seen thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, see, some people will say, well, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. One time the prophet says, you're going to die. He says, thus saith the Lord, you're going to die. The next time he says, thus saith the Lord, I'll give you 15 more years. But folks, the circumstances have changed. Now, what changed? Did God change? No. What changed? Hezekiah. And what changed in Hezekiah is that he began to rely on, he began to take a position of exercising that which belonged to him because he had put God first in his life. Now, what is this an example of? This is an example of Christians that die that don't have to. This is an example of Christians that die sick that don't have to. And the reason that they do is because they don't exercise the rights that they have that were purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. Here's the miracle. Uh, the, the healing is not even the miracle. The healing is just part of the covenant that God made with Israel. Hezekiah said unto the Isaiah in verse 8, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord on the third day? Now I want you to get this. Hezekiah is asking for a sign. We would think our first inclination might be to say, Well, that sure is unbelief. How is it that he's taking the word of the Lord from Isaiah who says, I'll heal you on the third day. Three days from now, you'll be healed. And I'll protect your kingdom from the king of Assyria for the the rest of your days. That was part of the prophecy as well. And I'll give you 15 more years to live. Yeah, well, can I have a sign? How do I know? How do I know? Now, folks, you can preach unbelief from this, but I want to show you where it's faith. Not necessarily faith on Hezekiah's part, but the example for us is one of faith. He asked for a sign. Now, what does God say? Does God say, well, die, you ungodly thing, you. How dare you ask me for a sign? How dare you look for a sign? I just gave you my word. No, notice what Isaiah says. Um, Isaiah Verse 9, Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? You tell me, does the sun go forward to show you or does he go backwards? Hezekiah, being the sharp guy he is, 
answers, it's easy for the shatter to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow return backwards 10 degrees. God, I know you can make the sun go forward 10 degrees. That's easy. Anybody can do that. I don't get it. But he says, let it go backwards. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backwards by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Let me ask you a question. How did God do this? He turns the shadow of the clock on the sundial that's there in the court. He turns the shadow of the, of the sundial back 10 degrees. Now, is God just playing with shadows? Or does the sun move? And if the sun moved, what did God have to do to make that work? Do you realize the laws of physics that would have to change in order for that to occur? Do you realize the universe has to be suspended? The laws that govern the universe, the, the, uh, the rotation of the earth and all that kind of stuff and the, the, the orbits of the earth around the sun. Do you realize the things that would have to change for the sun to go back 10 degrees? The shadow of the sun to go back 10 degrees? Now, in my thinking, and forgive me, I'm just a simple country boy. But in my thinking, it's like, wow, for all this stuff to happen, there must have been giant gears that that began to turn in heaven. And you heard this great creaking sound where the sun began to move. But God just says, okay. Isaiah cried out to the the Lord, and the Lord says, all right. Backwards is the same as forwards as I'm concerned. Hezekiah doesn't seem to understand that, but no big deal. And he just makes it happen. How in the world did he just make it happen? Folks, the rotation of the, of the earth and the orbit of the earth around the sun and everything is so precise that you can't mess with it and man live unless you're God. God just says, okay. Now, here's the thing that we have so often, that I, at least that I deal with, because we make such a big deal of, of healing and it's a big deal because Jesus purchased it. Jesus shed blood for it. We talk about healing. We preach about healing so much, and we see a lot of people healed as a result because people stand on the word to, to receive what Jesus purchased for them. But so often you'll have people that will say, well, Pastor Mike, I see what the word says. I, I choose to believe what the word says about healing. I've made my confession of healing. I've claimed it by faith. But how do I know? Same thing as Hezekiah. But how do I know? Now, it's easier, again, for us to be flip and say, well, you're not supposed to have any sign. But, folks, every one of us have got a sign, a sign that's more important than the sun going backwards. There are two signs that are given to the believer. One is, John said in 1 John, his letter to the church, he said, we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, I know, I know that healing is mine no matter what I see in my body, no matter what I feel, no matter how long it takes, I know that healing is mine because the Bible says so for two reasons. Number one, because I've got the love of God on the inside of me. I know, whether you know it or not, whether it shows or not, I know that I love some people not because of how I feel about them, but because of a love that God's placed on the inside of me for them. If I've got a sign, proof of the Holy Ghost that lives in me as a result of being saved, isn't that better than the sun going backwards? The second sign of God is that I speak in tongues. The Bible says this is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 4, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I've got two examples, two signs, and both of them of the Holy Ghost. One is the Holy Ghost in salvation, which is the fruit of the Spirit. The other is the Holy Ghost in the infilling, which is the, the evidence identified by speaking in other tongues. I've got two evidences that every word that God said is true. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, oh, well, yeah, how's that for evidence, though? Folks, if we realize there is only the the greatest impossibility, actually, the only impossible thing in the universe. There is one and only one impossible thing in the universe. And if we understood that, if if our eyes would be open just for a second to see that and understand that, it would change everything about our lives for the rest of the time on earth that we spend here on earth. Do you know what the only impossibility in the universe is? 
It's impossible for God to break his word. Everything else can be done. God chose that. I want the sun to go back 10 degrees. Okay. No big deal. God doesn't have to sweat. He doesn't have to exert any energy. He doesn't have to, you know, really put on a show about this. No. Why? Because God can't break his word. He cannot break his word. He cannot. Please understand the way I'm saying it. I'm saying it on purpose. He cannot break his word. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. That word repent means change. Has he said it and shall he not do it? Has he spoken it and shall he not make it good? If you've got the word of God, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never fail. That means if you've got the word of God on any subject, any area, anything pertaining to anything, You've got the word of God on it concerning your situation. You have absolute proof that it's a reality. You may not see it yet. It may not feel like it's done yet. But it's impossible for God to break his word. Wigglesworth attributed that, attributed the success of his whole ministry to that, that understanding. He would tell people that. He'd go to these crusades and these meetings and convention centers and halls and things like that in his day. He'd go in there and there'd be sick people lining the walls cripples, blind eyes, people with deafness, every kind of sickness and disease you can imagine. And Wigglesworth would stand there and laugh because people, you know, people were nervous. Is it, is it going to work tonight? Are these people really going to be healed? They'd see hard things. Wigglesworth would see some hard situation and, and almost every city would have some giant, terrible case that everybody knew about. There was one time, I don't know how often this happened, but one time we have record of the fact that, uh, that this person came in and there was some, I don't even remember what the condition was, but they were bedfast and so they brought them in on this stretcher thing and everybody in the, in the room knew about this person, knew about their situation and so the meeting stopped while everybody watched them bring this person in. Wigglesworth, he didn't stop. He's continuing on, but he can see everybody looking over to the, where they're bringing this person in. He knows he doesn't have the attention of the people. So finally, he just stopped. He waited and he watched them, bring them in, let them finish, and then went about his business. But everybody's looking over there to see the, the person and what's going to happen next. And finally, Wigglesworth said, all right, brother so-and-so over here, should we heal him now and go on with the meeting? Or should we wait till the end? Well, nobody said a word. Who's going to answer that question? So he said, well, I can see that I won't have your attention until he's healed. So he walked over to him, laid hands, on, laid hands on him and said, Father, I thank you that it's impossible for you to break your word. And your word says he's healed by the stripes of Jesus. So he backed up and says, okay, go. Everything stayed quiet for a minute. And he said, go, get up, run, do whatever. Another few minutes go, uh, a few seconds go by, seemed like minutes few seconds go by and Wigglesworth backs up looks at him again and says son don't you understand what I'm telling you get up and the power of God came on this guy hadn't until yet power of God came on that guy and raised him up he didn't get up it raised him up it stood him up he's laying down it stood him up people get upset because people fall into the power of God nowadays you wait till God starts standing them up Well, as you could well imagine, they had a meeting then. Everything about that city changed. Wigglesworth credited over and over and over again, he credited his, uh, his success to the understanding that it's impossible for God to break his word. We look at it, and I've been guilty of it too. We look at the situations and things that happened in his ministry, and we think, oh, wow, God used him in, in special faith. Well, that may be. But the special faith was predicated and founded on the fact that he understood that it was impossible for God to break his word. It's just as impossible for God to break his word to you as it was for Willsworth or for Hezekiah or for anybody else. It's impossible for God to break his word. Do you realize that the whole universe falls apart if God could break his word? 
Do you realize the reason God doesn't change is because if he changed what he said before to something he changes again, what he changes again would come to pass? Because what he says comes to pass? You'll get that later on. It's impossible for God to break his word. What's he told you? Oh, Pastor Mike, he said he'd meet our needs, but I just don't know. Seriously? God breathed on the Assyrian army. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, they're going to foreclose on my house. Folks, God breathed on the Assyrian army and killed 185,000 people. One banker is not a problem. Yeah, well, Pastor Mike, I'm believing for my healing, but the doctor says it's getting worse. Oh, well, then. God wasn't planning on that. That changes everything. Folks, is there any threat, is there any attempt on anybody's part, the devil or anybody else's, that can take away the salvation that Jesus purchased for you? Well, that salvation includes healing. The devil can't take your healing. He can try to hinder it. He can slow things down. He can create a lot of a problem. But let me tell you something. The longer it takes for you to receive your healing, the stronger you'll be when it, when it appears. Yeah, but I've been believing for a long time, Pastor Mike. Well, I understand what that's like. I understand that very well. Yeah, but I wanted to come quicker. Me too. <laughs> well, what do we do? Well, all I know is what the Bible says. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But if you let patience finish its work, you'll be perfect and complete. Wanting or lacking nothing. That means lacking no healing. You'll have what you believe for. Because it's impossible for God to break his word. Now Hezekiah's miracle happened for one and only one reason. Because he said, wait a minute, Lord, I've served you. Why didn't he take that position before Isaiah showed up? Why didn't Hezekiah, when the sickness came, why didn't Hezekiah turn his face to the wall and say, no, wait a minute, Lord, I've got a covenant promise from you. Healing's a part of the old covenant. Healing's part of the covenant you made with Abraham. Healing's a part of the covenant you made with Israel. You said if we walk in your ways and keep your statutes, you'd take away sickness from the midst of us. Why did he do that only when Isaiah said, well, you let this thing go and now you're going to die? Why does it take desperation on the part of so many people before they'll turn to God? That's what it took for Hezekiah. He got to the point where he said, wait a minute. You mean I'm going to die over this thing? Hold on. God, remember. So God said, yeah, that's right. Let me ask you, had God forgotten? Did God need Hezekiah to remind him? He says, oh, yeah, son of a gun, I forgot. He tore down those idols, cut down the groves, even got rid of that brass serpent that everybody's burning incense to. Excuse me. Totally slipped my mind. No, it was important for Hezekiah to remember. It's important for Hezekiah to remember that he has a covenant promise with a God that can heal him. It was Hezekiah that changed, not God that changed. And when Hezekiah changed the circumstances, and the only circumstance that changed is the, the, who he's looking to for help. When Hezekiah turned those circumstances around, God changed the situation, healed him, and gave him 15 more years to live. Are you with me? You've got a greater sign than Hezekiah ever had. You've got a living personality of the of the of god himself a divine personality living on the inside of you let's go to the next one turn with me over to daniel chapter three story of daniel is one that when the babylonian kingdom takes um, conquers israel they take the young men into their service to train them in their ways and and so forth the, um, uh, in case you don't understand the history and the, the, the way things worked back then, when, uh, when one kingdom would subdue another kingdom, they would take the young people with them 
take them away and take them back to the, the uh, palace and train them, treat them well, train them, treat them right and, and so forth, but train them to think like the king thinks, to think like this new uh, culture operates instead of their old culture with the intent, in many cases at least, not in every case, but in many cases with the, the, uh, the idea in mind that the conquering kingdom would send them back after they grow up and then these, these children that were of, uh, well, in this case, the, the Jewish children would then become governors back in their own home country and do what the Babylonians would want them to do. So that's the purpose for taking away these, these children and schooling them and all that kind of stuff. And there are three Hebrew children that the Bible identifies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, who decide, and Daniel seems to be the ringleader, the leader of the group. He decides uh, on their behalf. They all decide together, I guess, but he's the one that speaks up. And he says, we don't want to eat the things that are contrary to the law of Moses. So he goes to the, the uh, instructor of the school, the guy that's headmaster of the school, and he says, we don't want to uh, break the law of God by eating the things that, uh, that you've set before us. And the headmaster says, well, this is going to get me in trouble because everybody's going to see that you're not as healthy and then the king will take my head off. And so Daniel said, well, try this thing out. Give us pulse and water. I guess that's an oatmeal kind of thing. He said, give us that instead of the king's food and test us out. After a certain period of time, if we don't look as good as the others, then, uh, then we'll go back to doing whatever you tell us to do. But after that period of time, they looked fairer and fatter and healthier and everything else than the others. So from that point forward, they were recognized as having a, a, um, well, something that everybody else didn't have. They were recognized as serving their God, as bringing them to a place of prominence. And so they began to grow and they began to increase in, in strength and wisdom and so forth. And so all four of these guys are used in a great way. Now in Daniel chapter 3, it tells us about Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He makes an image to himself. He creates this giant statue, this golden statue. And he sets certain times of the day that when the music plays, everybody's supposed to stop what they're doing, bow down before that statue or in the, the uh, direction of that statue and, and recognize... Uh, worship the statue as recognition of their submission to the king. Well, it tells us that uh, that there were... Um, well, let's just start reading in verse 8. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews, and they spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, has made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet and the other music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. They said, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. See, they've made them rulers, magistrates of some type. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not their gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, now please understand this. Read this carefully. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage, now why is he mad? He's mad because they won't worship his image. Or at least that's what he's been told. He hadn't even confirmed the story yet, but he's mad because of what he's told. In his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these three men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not you serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, Please notice in verse 15, this is the king saying, here's what I'm going to do. Now, if you be ready at what time you hear the music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. In other words, I'm giving you a chance to get out of this. If when the next time the music plays, you fall down and worship the image, we'll act like this never happened. But, so there's a variable. But if you worship not, you shall be cast in the midst of the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now, the whole thing is they won't worship him as God. And so he said, so what God's going to deliver you? Now, the variable is, is simply this, whether or not they worship the image and therefore whether or not they're thrown into the fiery furnace. For, for has, um, Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar, the issue is, will you worship or will you not worship? If they've already decided in their hearts, as these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if they've already decided we're not worshiping the image, 
then the only variable for them is, do you throw us in or do you not? Do you see where everybody's coming from? What happens next? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Do you know what that means? That means we've already decided this beforehand. We're not waiting until we get in the heat of the moment. We're not waiting until we got in front of you and you made your threats. We didn't wait for that to decide what we're going to do if somebody challenges us about worshiping our God. Now, folks, let me, let me recommend something to you. Settle that up front before the fear of the situation occurs. Settle that up front. That's exactly what they've done. They know when they see this statue being made and hear the declaration of the king that everybody's supposed to fall down in worship, which they're not going to do and never will are going to do. When they hear this, they know that this time is coming. They are very well aware that they're going to have to, they're going to be faced with the decision or the choice of what are we going to do if, it, if, if we're told or, or told on or somebody tells the king about what we're going to do or what we're doing instead. That was bad English, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I mangled that up really bad. So what do they do? They decide up front. If the king ever calls us before him, here's how we'll all answer. We're all in this together. So king, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. We don't have to think about this for a moment. If it be so, now remember from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's position, the only if is whether the king throws them into the furnace or not. The king's if has just been answered. The king's if is, are you going to worship my image or not? That's been answered. There is no question on part of the king anymore. The only question that's outstanding is, are you going to throw us into the furnace? That's the if that the three are talking about here, beginning in verse 17. If it be so, if you throw us in, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. That was part of Nebuchadnezzar's question back in verse 15. The last thing, last phrase, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Well, if you throw us in, it's our God that will. But if not, if not what? See, I grew up in Sunday school hearing this story. If God doesn't save us, we're still not going to worship your image. Does that make sense to anybody? If God doesn't save them from the burning fiery furnace, they're dead. Worshiping an image is really not the issue any longer, is it? See, I was taught this to where the three Hebrew children said, well, we believe God will save us, but if he doesn't, we're still not worshiping you. That just makes no sense at all. Makes a good Sunday school story, I guess. It did for years. But it makes no sense at all. So they say, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. There's no equivocation on their part. There's no if God does or if God doesn't. They say, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. But if you don't, if you don't throw us in, in other words, be it known unto the old king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, if, if they are saying like the Sunday school taught us, If they're saying, well, we believe God will save us, but if he doesn't, then we're still not worshiping. If that's the case, Nebuchadnezzar has nothing to be upset about. He simply has to say, well, we'll see who does what then. Here's the door. Walk right in. If this is about what God does or doesn't do, then he has nothing to be upset about. Does he? If the if, if the variable is whether God delivers or God doesn't deliver, then what's Nebuchadnezzar got to be upset about? But that's not what it says. It says in verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. Why? Because they've challenged the king. They're not challenging God. They're not saying God might or might not deliver us. They're saying if you throw us in, God will deliver us. If you don't throw us in, we're not worshiping your image. They have just spit in the eye of the greatest king on the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar is full of rage, full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated, ever had been heated in other words. 
And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen in their hats, and the other garments and that were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew the men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now I'm going to pick up in verse 23 and read from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's the Bible of Jesus' day. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 23 down through verse uh, 25, I guess. Then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, get this, singing praise to God and blessing the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. And he wondered and rose up in haste and said to his nobles, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said to the king, Yes, O king. Verse 25, And the king said, But I see four men loose loose and walking in the midst of the fire and there has no harm happened to them and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of god folks you may not be aware of this but the in the jews have a whole song that shadrach meshach and abednego sang while they were in there they're not in there saying oh god we don't know if we're going to get cooked or not they go in singing praise to god because they said as an act of their faith And remember, these are three guys that had proved it from the time that they were kids, what putting the word of God first in your life does. It's part of the reason why they've been promoted. It's part of the reason why they're in the position they're in now, and they are not backing up for anybody. They said, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. In other words, O king, most powerful man on the planet, you can't kill us. That's why he's mad. He's mad because they've challenged his authority as king. Now things are changing a bit. I see four people in there. They're, uh, they're loose. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. I'm not sure what that's supposed to look like, but in the midst of a burning fiery furnace, I guess there's some indication. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach? Meshach? Uh, Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power. Nor was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed upon them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's make a statue for him. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that they trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Blessed be the God that kept them from obeying what I said to do. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss or against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Now, you would think that after this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would realize God's able to take care of himself. But no, he goes further. He's trying to appease their God in some way that only he, you know, an idol worshiper would think to do. Anybody that says anything against your God, we'll cut them in half. Kill their families, make sure there's no descendants left. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Folks, the devil will always tell you that putting God first will make you come out last or come behind in life. It's not true. You always come out ahead putting God first. You always come out ahead acting on the word. You always come out ahead standing up for God. And what happens is so many people just stand up for God and they haven't proved him yet. They go out like David against Goliath, but they go in in Saul's armor. Well, how do you prove God? 
in the little things when nobody's looking. So many times I hear people say, well, it's hard to serve God. No, it's not. Serving God just is a series of making the right choices when the situation arises. It's one right choice after another. That's all it is. Yeah, but it's hard. You miss out on so many things. Really? What do you miss out on? You miss out on the misery of the world? Yeah, but if I serve God, I can't have sex before marriage. You'll find that that turns out to be a great blessing, let me tell you. Go get you a disease. Go rejoice with an illegitimate child. What a blessing that'll turn out to be. I get so tired of hearing this. I heard this in my, my own house. My son had the idea, oh, if I serve God, I'm going to miss out on all this stuff. Boy, he's reaping what he sowed now. What a blessing. What a blessing. Thank God God can still redeem lives from destruction. And the final chapter hasn't been written yet, but oh, there's going to come a time. I know in my own family's life, there's going to come a time where they look back and they're going to say, why in the world did we do that? And the answer is very simple because they wouldn't listen. I can sympathize with you, those of you that have children that are away from God. I can sympathize very, very clearly, very easily. But the last chapter hadn't been written. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for getting out all of his benefits. Who forgiveth thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here it says over and over again that the people that put God first, God promotes them. He causes them to prosper. You always win putting God first. Always. May not look like it in the short run, but it sure does in the long run. Finally, the last one is in Daniel chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse 1. This is talking about Daniel. We've seen about how the other three worked, how God blessed them, brought them through. Now here's Daniel in the lion's den. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first. In other words, in the king's governmental setup, Daniel is, is his prime minister, the effect of, in effect, his prime minister. He's the chief of the three princes that are over all the 120 um, ones under them. And over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them and that the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. Now, folks, the only record that we have, the only thing that we can identify this excellent spirit of Daniel is the attitude that he had to put the things of God first. It was the same attitude that caused him as a young man, some years, we don't know how many years, but but probably a good number of years before, where he said, we don't want to defile our bodies by eating the king's food. We're willing to eat food that's not as tasty so that we can keep the things of God, keep the law of Moses. That's an excellent spirit. When you're willing to put God first no matter what. Even when it looks like you come out worse. Even when it looks like you're going to lose out on some of the world's pleasure. To put the things of God first. That's an excellent spirit. And that's the kind of spirit. That's the kind of attitude. That's the kind of character that will promote you. That's what God can use to put you ahead. Then this Daniel was preferred above the princes. President, excuse me, and princes. Because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Notice how the king is operating here. The king's looking for a way to make him in charge of everything. 
He's not yet, but that's the king's plan. Why? Because of the excellent spirit that was in Daniel. Can I stop here long enough to say that Daniel didn't have half of what you've got? He's a spiritually dead man. You've got the life of God in you. I hope you have the same attitude toward the word that he had. Because a man that's got the life of God with the same attitude of putting the word first and putting God first in every aspect of life cannot be held down. He'll always rise to the top. Joseph's a good example of that. He had a dream of governing and protecting his family. So the devil threw him into slavery. Threw him into a pit first. Then wound up, he wound up in the jail as a slave in Egypt. But he wound up running the jail then wound up running the country. You can't keep down somebody that's got an excellent spirit. And those were spiritually dead men. The stories we've got of the Old Testament, those were spiritually dead men. Oh, that our eyes would be open to what we have. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. In other words, the only way we're going to turn anything against this guy is to make it illegal to do what he does in worshiping God. So they talked the king into it. They talked Darius into uh, making this decree that for the next 30 days, nobody worships any other God except him. When Daniel heard this, He went into his own house, shut the doors, and worshiped God. He's not doing it in the public square. He's not trying to make an example or embarrass the king in any way. But he's not letting the, the, the law keep him from doing what he knows is right. Well, these guys are listening in. So they came to the king and said, Daniel, verse 13, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee or king or the decree that thou hast signed, but makest his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, not with Daniel. He realizes now, here's how these guys tricked me. And set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored in, labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. These, then these three, these men assembled under the Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. See, in those days, rulers had to live by their own laws. (laughs) Then the king commanded... And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now here you got the king believing God with Daniel. He's been tricked and forced into a corner to throw him into the lion's den because that's the foolish decree that he made. But he said, God will deliver you, won't he? And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that the purpose not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him and his sleep went from him. In other words, he didn't sleep. He stays up all night. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. He's hopeful, but he's not sure. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has shut his angel and has shut the lions' mouths, and that they have not hurt me for as much as before him, uh, as before as much as before him, innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then the king was exceeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. 
And the king commanded, <laughs> and they brought, they brought those men which had accused Daniel and cast them into the den of lions, them and their children and their wives and the lions and the, had mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Can't say the lions weren't hungry. Some people have done that. Bless their hearts. They've tried to excuse and explain away the things of God. And they said, well, you know, it's not a big deal for a lion. A lion may have eaten a couple of days before and he just wasn't hungry. You know, they don't eat every day. Well, they ate that morning. Coincidentally, they ate the evil men and not Daniel. Now, here you've got the same situation, folks. You've got four examples how God does miraculous things to promote and provide and protect those that put him first. Saul said it this, um, Paul said it this way. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, he said, Since God is for me, who can be against me? I like the way Brother Hagin used to say that. Every time he'd come to that scripture, he'd say, I like to say it this way. Since God is for me, what does it matter who's against me? Since God is for me, what does it matter who's against me? God really meant what he said when he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He really meant it when he said, the words that I speak into you, they are spirit in their life. The answer is in the word. It's always in the word. And when you put the word first, there is no want to them that fear him. Fearing the Lord is putting him first, putting the word of God first in your life. There is no want. There's no lack. There's no absence of anything, any good thing. To them that fear the Lord. Folks, there's nothing God will withhold from you. Not a thing in the world. But it has to come through the word and it has to come to put someone of the right heart. God will still do miracles for you. I'm convinced that God would rather do miracles for you than any of these miracles we see in the Old Testament. Because those in the Old Testament, the Bible says, were his servants. You're his children. Oh, if we would only get that. I, uh, somebody said here recently, I read, I didn't hear it, but I read, that somebody said, I've never found a Christian that doubted God's love for the sinner. But a lot of those same Christians will doubt God's love for them. If we only knew the great love that God has for us, if our eyes could only be opened to how great his love is, and the unlimited power that's available and at our disposal because he does love us so much. God hadn't stopped being in the miracle working business. He's not the God that does miracles. He's the God of miracles. God will still do miracles for you. Whether personally, for your family, whether they're financial, whether they're healing miracles. God will still do the same miracles for you. He'll turn whole nations around if necessary to meet the faith of his children. Wigglesworth used to say God will pass over a million people to get to one person standing in faith. I don't know about you, but I want to be that one person. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man will do unto me. Putting God first will put you over in every situation. You don't have to be afraid of the threats of the enemy because God's word is established forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the greatness of your love and the greatness of your power. Lord, we recognize that these examples of miracles that we see, the history of miracles that we see in the Old Testament, are intended for us to learn. They're intended for us to recognize who you are and what you're still able to do. Thank you, Father, that your hand is not shortened, nor is your arm weakened, but that these things are still for us today too. Father, we thank you that as we put you first, you put us over. You cause us to prosper. You cause us to succeed in every area of life. So, Father, there are people in different needs that are represented here today, people that are being withstood by others unjustly. We've got people that are threatening to take possessions of your people. We've got the enemy that is attached to the bodies of your people with sickness and disease. 
attempting to either take their lives or steal joy from them. We thank you, Father, that your word is true in every situation. That Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we're healed. We thank you, Father, that because we put your word first, you make us to prosper and have good success in everything that we do. Thank you, Father, that you show that you are on our side. We rest in your faithfulness, Lord. We trust in you and only in you. We can't do it on our own. And we thank you that we don't have to. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Let's all stand, please. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment. Lord, we love you. We bless your name. We thank you that what you've done for others, you'll do for us and even more. Thank you, Father, that you are more than willing to show yourself strong on our behalf because we trust in you. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours. Financial freedom is ours. Peace is ours. Lord, we thank you for bringing back our family members. Bring them back to you so that you can bring them back to us. Satan, we refuse to give you any place in their lives. We refuse to relinquish God's plan for their lives. In Jesus' precious name. Father, we thank you that we'll be like the three Hebrew children that come through every situation, come through our situations without even the smell of smoke on our clothes. Satan, we refuse to let you have one little bit of the enjoyment of life because Jesus came to destroy every one of your works. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen, 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 amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.